You are listening to Matter of Theology, a podcast production that deals with church and cultural issues from a biblical standpoint. We stand firm on the sufficiency of Scripture, hitting every topic with an open Bible and the boldness to say things that others are afraid to. And now, here's the host of Matter of Theology, Chris Huff. Okay, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Matter of Theology. No, I am not Chris Huff. I am Drew. Uh, Chris is not going to be on this episode uh, just because um, <clears throat> him as a premillennialist, uh, I thought he might want to kind of keep his distance from this one. <laughs> but uh, it's going to be a little bit different show. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm actually going to be doing a response to the most recent episode of Apologetics Live. Now, you should know that Apologetics Live is a show run by our friends Andrew Rappaport, Anthony Silvestro, and Justin Pierce. Now, these are faithful brothers in the Lord, and we here at Matter of Theology, we love them dearly. Not just because we've been on their show uh, or because that that. We're a part of the Christian podcast community, but these brothers truly love the Lord, and you should be listening to Apologetics Live every Thursday. If you're not, I don't know what's the matter with you. Um, these brothers are great. They're fun to be around. Um, it's always a good time when you watch their show. You can tell that they love Scripture, they love the Lord, and they love to have a good time, um, and they love to edify and encourage the body of Christ, and we love that, and we love them. But uh, the topic of this particular episode that I'm I'm doing a response to um, is called the resurrection and premillennialism. This topic came by way of the Easter sermon given by Pastor Jim Osmond, who was a guest on the show. By the way, I would strongly encourage you if you have not, please go listen to Pastor Osmond's sermon from this past Easter. The title is Resurrection, the Fulfillment of the Promise. He preaches through Acts chapter 13, verses 30 through 38, and it is one of the best sermons on the resurrection that I have ever heard. I was extremely blessed and edified by it, and I'm sure that you will as well. I will link to that show in the show notes. And let me tell you, the sermon that I heard on on Easter Sunday was not a good sermon, okay? The whole point of the sermon that I heard was Jesus went through Friday because he had to get to Sunday. And he did that because he knew that you were going to go through a Friday, but your Sunday's coming. No. If you want to know what the resurrection is all about— Please go listen to Pastor Osmond's sermon, <laughs> okay? It is so good. <clears throat> but there was one part where um, he made a comment that he admits was really just a throwaway comment. And by the way, before I even really get started, uh, I want to let you, the listeners, know that um, that Andrew and I uh, talked about this, that I would be doing a response um, <clears throat> I told him I was, he was receptive of that, and Chris actually talked to, to 
Jim Osman and about some a topic completely different. And Chris just happened to mention that I was going to be doing a response, and Pastor Osman was excited about that as well. So uh, they are already expecting a response. This isn't something that's going to be blindsiding them or coming out of nowhere. This is something that uh, has already been talked about um, and, and that they are actually awaiting. But uh, in his sermon, Pastor Osmond, he has this one throwaway comment, and it was a gem of a comment. But when he says it, you really want him to expound on it. Uh, But that's actually why Andrew had him on, uh, was to talk about this comment. Pastor Osmond says, says this in his sermon. He says, if the Davidic promises required physical resurrection then the Apostle Paul was neither an amillennialist nor a postmillennialist. Now, let me give some context. <clears throat> and excuse me, I'm getting over a slight cough. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Pastor Osman is preaching on the resurrection. You know, go figure that. A pastor actually preaching on the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> but he's, he's preaching on the resurrection a physical resurrection as God's fulfillment to the promises of David. We can see this in Isaiah 53, 5, Psalm 132, 11, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 14, Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 16, uh, Psalm 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. Uh, we see it in, in many places throughout Scripture. We also see it in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 13, which reads, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the idea Pastor Osman puts forth is that the one whom God would raise from the dead would reign on a literal physical, or would reign in a literal physical kingdom, in a literal physical city, and sit on a literal physical throne. He says these promises could not be fulfilled spiritually, metaphorically from heaven, or on a spiritual throne in heaven, because all these could happen without a physical resurrection. That the amillennialist and the postmillennialists do not require a physical resurrection to fulfill the promises of David. So in this show, uh, I'm going to be interacting with that claim through Scripture. Um, And uh, I I do want to say that if you go and listen to the Apologetics Live episode, Pastor Osman explained all three millennial views. Uh, He was broad in his description, which was by necessity due to time, uh, because every, basically every millennial view has its, its sub millennial views (laughs) that, that really make it kind of confusing, um, and, and kind of drawn out. So there, there's just, there was just not enough time for him to cover all the the millennial views and then their sub millennial views. Uh, but I felt that he gave a fair representation, especially that of the post millennial view. Uh, But I'm going to be interacting with his claims, but I'm also going to be interacting at the end with some other comments about postmillennialism that were made on the show as well. Now, the qualifier of the claim is all mill and post mill do not require a physical resurrection 
to fulfill the promises of David. So the, that's the qualifier, to fulfill the promises of David. And I'm going to put that on hold, and I'm going to circle back to that when we discuss the nature of the kingdom. But during the course of the show, it was admitted that all mills and post-mills both affirm a bodily resurrection of Jesus. But then he says that they, the the on post mills, just believe that it's soteriologically necessary, but not eschatologically necessary. So he asks, what in your eschatology requires a physical resurrection? So I want to respond to that question first. What in your eschatology requires a physical resurrection? Now, these are two different categories, okay? Salvation and eschatology. Soteriology, eschatology. Salvation in in the end times. But nevertheless, if the former is wrong, then the latter doesn't matter, okay? That being the case, I want to put forth three points to answer the question, what in your eschatology requires a physical resurrection? So I would first argue that... The fact that since uh, soteriolo- soteriologically, it, that the, the resurrection is soteriologically necessary, as Pastor Osman actually demonstrated in his sermon, uh, for Christ to be raised bodily, then by default, my eschatology uh, automatically possesses a bodily resurrected Christ. The views of how Christ reigns, whether it be from heaven or spiritually, that doesn't even matter. If my salvation is based off of a false Christ that did not rise from the dead, my eschatology does not matter anyway because I'm not saved. Since the resurrection is the heart and soul of the Christian faith, the heart and soul of my soteriology, um, for, for me to be saved, he was raised for our justification, for the forgiveness of our sins. If he is not raised, then we are still in, my, in our sins. That's First uh, Corinthians 15, 17. That's primary. Since, since we believe it for our salvation, then by extension, we believe it for our eschatology as well. It is required in my eschatology because it is first and foremost required for my salvation. Now, I do believe Pastor Osmond would affirm that premise, uh, but I, I do want to be fair and say that that point, while I think that is a, a, a kind of a, 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 a staple of a point, I, I want to be fair and I do want to say, well, that, that can still beg the question. That will still beg the question that Pastor Osmond is posing. Uh, but on the basis for the necessity of salvation, the bodily resurrection does not prove premillennialism. Now, remember, we still have to address the qualifier, but since it's since the bodily resurrection is required for salvation, whether you're an all-mill, a post-mill, a pre-mill, a historic pre-mill, the bodily resurrection does not automatically prove premillennialism. Second, I would argue that since all three eschatological views believe in a resurrection of the saints, those who are alive and those who have died— as Paul tells us in in 1 Thessalonians 4, then that requires a physical resurrection of Christ as the fulfillment of the first fruits and the firstborn from the dead. If Christ did not resurrect, then we will not resurrect. So Christ's physical resurrection from the dead is eschatologically required to believe in the resurrection of the saints. Third, since all three eschatological positions believe in a physical second coming of Christ, 
then a physical resurrection is required. Acts 1, uh, verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. We know that he left bodily. We know he is returning bodily. So physical resurrection from the dead is eschatologically required to believe in the second coming of Christ. If Christ did not rise physically, then he cannot return physically. Now, these points do not prove the posts or all mill positions to be the absolute correct eschatological view, but they do prove that the bodily resurrection is not exclusively necessary to the premillennial, to the premillennial position. Now, let's move on to the qualifier from earlier, that the physical resurrection is necessary to fulfill the promises of David. So let's turn in our Bibles— Hopefully you have your Bibles because you listen to the show and you know that we go through Bibles here. Let's turn to Acts 13 and look at verses 30 through 38. This is what, uh, this is a sermon from the Apostle Paul that Luke records. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now I want to focus in on 34 real quick. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So the blessings of David, that a descendant of David would come to sit on his throne. Now, we see this uh, also in uh, Isaiah, speaking of the promises of the mercies of David. That's Isaiah 55, 3. But some of those verses that I rattled off earlier, I just want to read those, some of those real quick. Psalm 132, 11. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 through 14. Now, this is uh, a much longer passage, so I shortened it to just a couple sentences. Uh, This is God's promise uh, to raise up a descendant of David, to establish David's kingdom and establish a throne which shall last forever. 
Uh, we have Solomon's prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 16. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. And Second Samuel 7, uh, verse 13, we've, we've already read this. Let's read it again, though. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. These would refer to what Paul called the sure blessings of David. Now, the real question is, uh, what is the nature of this kingdom? The claim is that it is a physical kingdom here on earth and that Christ will sit on a physical throne in that physical kingdom. I want to argue that it is not a physical kingdom here on earth, but rather a heavenly one. And you you can say a spiritual one, sure, uh, but nevertheless, it is a real kingdom. And if you are in Christ, then you are in fact a member currently of that kingdom. You're not waiting to be put into that kingdom or brought into that kingdom as a member. You are currently a member. So take into consideration Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. So they believed, the, the Pharisees believed in a earthly, physical kingdom. He answered them, and he said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So even here in this verse, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is not a physical one. That you, It's not one that you can look to and say, There it is. Let's go over there. It's not a, it's, it, here Jesus says it's not a physical one. Now, this is a, just by the way, um, just throwing this out there, it is not absurd to think that God's kingdom is a spiritual one. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel demands a king to rule and judge over them like all the other nations. Verse 7 of 1 Samuel 8, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Israel did not have a physical king on earth, but God was ruling as king from heaven, but they rejected him. They did not have a physical kingdom to be ruled by a king, but Israel collectively was the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, God built them a physical kingdom and set a physical king over them. And all throughout the Old Testament, we can see that the prophets prophets looked forward to when the descendants of David, God's appointed king, would sit on a throne. Uh, I'm just throwing that out there. Take it or leave it. But let's get into uh, talking about the nature of the kingdom. Now, uh, again, throughout the Old Testament, uh, we see the looking forward to a kingdom that would that would cover the entire world. Uh, and it, it would it would seem that this kingdom would be a physical one, right? 
it, it would rule from sea to sea, and all the kings and the nations will bow down and serve him. That references Psalm 82, or not Psalm 82, Psalm 72, uh, verses 8 through 11. But what we have right now is we have an established kingdom. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. This is a vision about the establishment of a divine kingdom. Now let's look at verses 32 through 35. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The legs and feet are Rome. A stone that strikes at the feet, that strikes at Rome, which it would strike, the whole system would then come crumbling down. But this stone that was used to strike would become a mountain and fill the whole earth. Christ came during the reign of the Roman Empire. The stone is the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 4, 23. Christ goes out proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, of course, the gospel message is the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, which was the establishment of the divine kingdom here on earth. Look at verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself, but it will itself endure forever. When Christ came, we had an established kingdom. He brought the kingdom. And we will see that even more a little later. So we have an established kingdom. But we also have a heavenly rule. So turn over just a couple of chapters to Daniel 7. This is another vision of the same kind, but a little different. Daniel 2 was a statue with four distinct parts, those parts representing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Daniel 7 is a vision of four beasts that represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The Daniel 2 vision was about the establishing of the kingdom. Daniel 7 is the ascension to the throne where the king is given his kingdom. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was, pre- and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples of the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I just want to point out, goes up to heaven, receives a kingdom, and that kingdom is everlasting and will not be destroyed. This is a prophecy looking forward to the ascension of Christ to heaven after his resurrection. Notice that it says he is coming up to the Ancient of Days, and there is given a kingdom, not descending from the Ancient of Days to establish a kingdom. Christ quotes this verse in Matthew 24. Now, premillennialists will say that Matthew 24 is yet future. I disagree, but that's a, a, a later conversation. <clears throat> but Jesus also quotes Daniel 7:13 again in Matthew 26, verse 64, where before Caiaphas, Jesus says, hereafter, or that can be rendered from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, he references uh, Psalm 110.1 here. Um, and you'll see the reference to Psalm 110.1 um, <clears throat> quite often uh, as I'm going through this. Psalm 110.1 is, um, Now sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, or, or no, he shall reign until I have made all his enemies uh, a footstool for his feet. Uh, you'll see that verse referenced a lot as, as we go through. But uh, let me take this passage from Matthew 26, 64, and let me vote that passage for you, okay? So Jesus is saying to Caiaphas, I'm the guy that Psalm 110.1 is referring to. I'm about to be sitting at the right hand, having my enemies made a footstool for my feet, because I'm also the guy about to go up to the Ancient of Days and be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, like Daniel 7, 13, and 14 told you. So Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and the ascension of Christ shows the establishment of the divine kingdom, and Christ entered into the rule of that kingdom when he resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. So we have an established kingdom, we have a heavenly rule, and we have a present reality of that kingdom. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning that the kingdom is within reach. It's coming. It's within reach. Matthew 12, 28. This is very, this is going to be very Matthew heavy. Jesus, after casting out a demon says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. First it was within reach, now it's here. David Chilton, in his book, Paradise Restored, uh, he says it this way. He says, the kingdom is established definitively in the work of Christ. It is established progressively throughout history until it is established finally on the last day. So we have inauguration, progression, consummation. 
We have a present reality. We have a progressive reality. Remember Daniel 2, where the stone would become a mountain. Jesus tells two two parables that are of a similar vein. Um, These parables, I guess you could say parallel, uh, Daniel 2. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Both are found in Matthew 13. These parables are about the kingdom. Verse 31, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is planted, it becomes a large tree. So the kingdom begins small, but it continually grows over time. Verse 33, the leaven, which leavens the whole lump, okay? It it has to be worked into the dough, but over time, with just a little leaven, the whole lump becomes leavened. Christianity began in Israel with 12 men, and from there it spread all over the world. And now Christ is growing his church and bringing all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. So we also have a future reality, okay? We will reign with him forever. He was resurrected so that we can also take part in his resurrection to reign with him on that day of resurrection. The kingdom will be handed over to God. That's 1 Corinthians 15. On the day of resurrection, the kingdom will be handed over. So it is not that we're waiting for an earthly kingdom with an earthly throne to be established when Christ comes. Christ is on the throne now, and the kingdom is present and growing. The resurrection of Christ from the dead was the fulfillment of the promises of David. And I believe that that is how the Apostle Peter viewed this as well. So now we're going to be looking, kind of comparing Acts 2 with Acts 13. Pastor Osman, in his sermon, made mention of of Paul's sermon, made that that Paul's sermon uh, in chapter 13 parallels Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And I, I agree with him on this. So if you will turn in your Bibles back to the book of Acts, this time chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 36. This is Peter. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses." Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you, uh, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There we see Psalm 110.1 again. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
I want to go back and read verses 30 and 31. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of the Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Not that Christ would come back to reign on a physical throne, but that where David was an earthly king that died and saw decay, the Messiah rose as the eternal king. The kingdom of David and the throne of David pointed to a greater kingdom and a greater throne that the Messiah would occupy. It would not be earthly, it would be eternal. Now, I just want to note here, verse 31, the resurrection uh, of, of the Christ, Christos, the office uh, of Messiah. He, Peter here is, is putting forth first the office of Messiah before he gets to the personal aspect of who the Messiah is. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. Um, you may think that's interesting, too. Uh, maybe not. Uh, you may think it's irrelevant. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Peter just, he put the office of, of Christ first before he put uh, the personal title of who uh, would hold that office. But let's, let's break down Peter's sermon here, okay? We're going to break it down really into five, five areas or five points. So first we have the promised mentioned. And so, uh, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to make uh, sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, so Peter mentions the promise. Then he goes into the fulfillment of the promise through the resurrection. That's verse thirty-one. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So the fulfillment of the promise through the resurrection. Then we see third, the realization of the fulfillment of the promise in verse 33. Therefore, okay, as a result of, as a result of the fulfillment of the promise, he was exalted, right? Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. All right. As a result of the fulfillment of the promise, Christ was exalted. Four, the result of the resurrection was the fulfillment of of the promise, or the result that the resurrection was the fulfillment of the promise. This is verses 34 and 35. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Quote Psalm 110.1 again. That's the result of the resurrection as the fulfillment of the promise. And then five, we get the reiteration. Just in case Peter wasn't clear, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord, kurios, the one who has ruling authority. 
Christ is sitting on not just a temporary throne that he's going to leave and come back to one to an earthly earthly throne. He's sitting on the eternal throne now. J.A. Alexander in his commentary on Acts from the Geneva series follows the same line of argumentation showing that the resurrection of Jesus was a fulfillment of the Davidic promises. So now I believe that Paul in Acts 13 has the same thought in mind, except Paul in verse 30 mentions the resurrection first, then he says through the resurrection the promise to the fathers and to our children were fulfilled. That's verses 32 and 33. Then he lists out those promises that were fulfilled, verses 33 and 35. Then Paul bookends the idea of the resurrection as the fulfillment by saying, it wasn't David who raised, but Christ. That's verse 37. Now, from a devotional put out by Ligonier Ministries on Acts 13, uh, verse 34, uh, I'm not sure uh, who this was written by. May have been R.C., may have been someone else. No name was given. No no date was given either. But this is from one of the devotionals um, from, their, from their page. They say this about this verse. But keeping the same covenant also meant that God would have to preserve the throne forever. An earthly throne doesn't last forever. I just want to throw that out there. Okay? He must preserve the throne forever, lest he be a God who breaks his word. 2 Samuel 7, verses 13. Verse 13. The only way to fit these things together is through resurrection. I'm still quoting the devotional. <clears throat> for, the, for a descendant of David who dies for his people remains on his throne only if he is restored to it by coming back from the dead. So the promise to give the right descendant the holy and sure blessings of David in Acts 13.34 is really a promise to raise the descendant from the dead. And God has resurrected this chosen descendant, King Jesus, ensuring that we might share in the blessings of life and prosperity first given to Abraham. Now, interesting If you look at Acts uh, chapter 28, verse 23, Paul does not speak of the kingdom of God as something that is coming. He speaks as though it's present. So let's look at Acts Acts, uh, 28 real quick and, and read this verse. Acts 28, verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus for both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening Paul speaks of 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 the kingdom as as though it is actually there Colossians 1.13, Paul says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into uh, uh, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom is always spoken of as a present reality. Now, here are some verses if you if you want to jot these down and and 
look at them later. Um, feel free to do that. But just some verses to take into consideration. Hebrews 1, verses 3, 8, and 13. Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19. Okay, the church has the keys to the kingdom. First uh, Thessalonians 2, 12. Hebrews 12, 28. The receiving of a kingdom. <clears throat> so now that I've gone through all of that, Pastor Osmond would probably agree with a lot of that, but still say that there is a future kingdom yet to come, that Christ's second coming uh, will bring in a thousand years before the final resurrection at the end. In the premillennial view, there is a resurrection of the saints, or a rapture um, is the is the popular term. There's a resurrection of the saints, followed by a seven-year tribulation. The return of Christ to establish his, his thousand-year kingdom here on earth after that seven years, then a final resurrection where the saints and the wicked will be separated and judged at the end. I will argue that there is no place to insert a 1,000-year reign on earth after Christ returns. Now, why do I say that? because of what Dr. Greg Bonson called the unity of the eschatological complex. The eschatological events we are anticipating are unified in the Bible. The resurrection of the saints happens at the same time as the resurrection of the wicked. The judgment of the saints takes place at the same time as the judgment of the wicked. Now let's break this down. We have, we have a general resurrection and a general judgment. Okay, John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. Now, Pastor Osmond used John 5 in his sermon. It reads, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who are dead to good deeds, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All right, look again at verse 28. All who are in the tombs. All right, cross-reference that with 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 16. Now look at Acts 24, 15. A resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Okay, nowhere is there a mention of a thousand-year gap between resurrections. If there were... Why didn't Jesus here in John 5 say that there was going to be a first resurrection and then I'm going to establish my kingdom and then there's going to be another resurrection? We don't see that. In Acts 24, we don't see that. There's going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Not There's going to be a resurrection of the righteous, then there's going to be this long period of time, then there's going to be another resurrection. We don't see a thousand-year gap. The general judgment. These are things that happen at the same time, okay? Matthew 25, verses 32 and 46. So verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate separate them uh, from, one, from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. No mention of a thousand-year gap. 
2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, we talk about the uh, how God renders vengeance unto those who afflicted you when he comes to be glorified. John 6, 39, uh, John, yeah, John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40, and, and verse 44. Uh, as, as faithful Calvinists, we, we love this verse. Uh, we use it all the time uh, to, show, to show the sovereignty of God. Those who are given as a love offering to Christ, and Christ keeps them until he raises them up on the last day. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 22 through uh, 28. Uh, go read those verses. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to turn there and read those verses because I think that is important. Um, I, th- I think that's important to understand. So beginning in verse uh, 22. <clears throat> actually, let me begin in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are in Christ at his coming. Verse 24, then comes the end when he shall hand over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. Again, Psalm 10, 1. But what do we see here in, in these verses 20 through 26? We see the order of resurrection. First Christ, then everyone else. At the end. (laughs) Jesus does not come before a literal millennium. When Jesus comes, it is not to bring a millennium. It is the end, as verse 24 says, of 1 Corinthians 15. First Jesus rose from the dead. Then, we actually have uh, we actually have here two resurrections. We have the spiritual resurrection, and then we have the physical resurrection. The physical resurrection, uh, where our, our salvation also came the resurrection of the dead, um, because that's referring to our being dead in Adam but alive in Christ. Verse twenty-two. And then verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. So Christ resurrected first. After that, those who are in those who are Christ at his coming. No mention of a of of a of a seven-year tribulation there. No mention of a thousand-year reign on earth. Why? Because after that resurrection, then comes the end, when the kingdom is handed over to the Father. So <clears throat> That is kind of my uh, my argument there uh, to Pastor Osman. Uh, I hope uh, <clears throat> I hope that it is received well, uh, and at some point, I'm sure uh, we will have uh, a nice, uh, loving, brotherly discussion. Um, <clears throat> because I I am curious about how how he would even answer uh, what Doctor Bonson called the uh, uh, the unity of the eschatological complex. But again. Um, 
I am going to listen uh, to link his sermon in the show notes because it was a great sermon, and I highly encourage you to check that out. But <clears throat> now, just a couple of things that were that were touched on through the show, um, because again, the show just kind of went all different directions dealing with post millennial topics and stuff. Um, uh, but I, I really first wanted to address. Uh, uh, the the things that Pastor Osmond uh, had said because he was the reason that the show took place. He was the main guest on the show, and so I wanted to to address his comments first. And I hope uh, that I did that in a in a lovingly and a and in, in a respectful way. Uh, if not, I'm sure I'll hear about it. If not, uh, and, and even if I did, I guarantee you Andrew will probably yell at me anyway and say that I didn't uh, and make a joke out of it. So, but to address some of the other things, I know someone's probably talking about, uh, the new heavenly Jerusalem, uh, you're saying, but yeah, but there's going to be a new Jerusalem. Well, uh, in revelation 21, two, what do we see about the new Jerusalem that it is adorned as a bride? Well, what is the bride of Christ? It's the church. So the new Jerusalem isn't a city. It's a people. It's a group of people. We are the new Jerusalem. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the kingdom, which is the new Jerusalem. It is the church. Uh, Andrew at, at one point made a, a comment about Augustine. Now, <clears throat> I don't read a whole lot of Augustine, uh, or some of you might say Augustine, um, and are yelling at me right now, but oh well. Now, I don't read a lot of Augustine, but I do have kind of a question uh, for Andrew about his comment, because he said that Augustine believed in a literal millennium. He just thought that he was in it. So so how I'm thinking about this is that um, after Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven, did Augustine believe that Jesus returned and established that, McKin- that, King- that millennium? Or... Did he believe that Jesus was returning at the end of that millennium? Um, I'm I'm not sure. Just because he believes he's in the millennium, okay. What what does that mean? Does does that mean he believe believes Jesus returned after he ascended the first time and and brought the millennium, or did he believe that he's coming at the end of that millennium? I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> there. There was a comment by uh, Justin Pierce about discerning the times um, that Jesus was saying that we need to, to discern the time, and that was on an es- eschatological basis. Um, but that that passage appears in, in, in two places. It appears in Matthew sixteen three and Luke twelve fifty six. And if we look at if if you look at both of those passages, especially the Luke twelve fifty six gives gives more context to the Matthew 16:3. Jesus talking to the Pharisees, telling them about discern discerning that being able to discern the times. He's saying you can go outside, you can look at the sky, and you can tell what's about to happen just by looking at the sky, what kind of day it's going to be, what kind of night it's going to be. But you don't know this present time right now. He's and Jesus is saying He's saying, you don't know, you don't recognize what's about to take place, that the Messiah, the Son of God is here before you, and you don't even recognize it. You can recognize the signs in the sky, 
and what kind of day it's going to be, but you don't even recognize the Son of God when He comes to your face. You can't discern this present time. That's what um, that's what Jesus was talking about. Um, not being not being able to discern, uh, <clears throat> you know, the later eschatological. Uh, times I don't believe he was he was speaking on an eschatological basis because I think the context in Luke twelve fifty six um, brings that out that he was speaking about that present time which he was in. <clears throat> uh, there was also uh, a comment as it related to the Olivet discourse um, that famine would be predicted uh, or, or in Matthew twenty four talks Matthew now. We can run through all the events of the Olivet Discourse, which is in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, uh, where uh, famines are predicted. Uh, Agabus in uh, Acts 11, verse 28, uh, predicted that a famine uh, would take place uh, under Claudius, and it did. Um, uh, Tacitus records that a great earthquake took place in 67 AD, not to mention that Israel sits on a fault line, so I'm sure that there were many earthquakes. Uh, but again, we can run through all the events of the Olivet Discourse. Um, I would think uh, that at a later time would be a beneficial discussion to have, but a key indicator is that Jesus says that those things in those passages would take place during the time of that generation. That's one thing that is most commonly overlooked, I believe, when discussing the Olivet Discourse. Jesus said the things that would take place would happen within that generation. Now, some will say that that could mean a race of people, but Jesus uses the term genea. To mean generation. Now, there's a term for race, genos, but Jesus doesn't use that term. He uses genia. And every time in Scripture genia is used, it means a generation which is 30 to 40 years. So we need to take that into consideration when we talk about Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, that Jesus says those things would take place in that generation. Um, <clears throat> Now, there was also a comment made that we need to understand kind of these promises, how the Jews would have understood the promises. And well, part of the issue we see in the Gospels and and Jesus's run-ins with the Pharisees was that they held to the law. Um, it, it wasn't their... It wasn't their theological zeal, okay? It, was, it really wasn't even that they held to the law. It was their misunderstanding of the law. So Jesus is continually correcting the understanding of the people and his disciples. So we can't say we need to look at these things and understand them how they would have understood the promises of David. Jesus is continually correcting the people's understanding of what the Old Testament actually spoke of. Uh, there was also a comment. Uh, someone someone uh, wrote in and asked about the Seven Mountain Mandate, um, that there are comparisons between postmillennialism and the Seven Mountain Mandate. Um, now, the Seven Mountain Mandate comes from Bethel 
and IHOP uh, KC. So the International House of Prayer, Kansas City, Bethel Redding, Bill Johnson, Mike Bickle, who are heretics. So real quick, the Seven Mountain Mandate is a teaching that it is our job to take dominion over seven areas or seven mountains. It would be uh, like politics and entertainment. Uh, the, these would kind of be uh, the areas uh, that, that you take over uh, in order to usher in the return of Christ. Now, this seems similar to the postmillennial view since in post-mill, there is an aspect of dominion theology. The difference is who is the one taking dominion. <clears throat> so where the seven mountain mandate, it is the people who are taking dominion so Christ can return. The in the post-millennial view, Christ, as the one who possesses all authority, is taking dominion, putting all his enemies under his feet. One has the people as the cause to bring Christ. The other has the people as the instrument used by Christ. But for those who don't know, um, and Andrew knows this, he and I talked about it some um, when he called me on the phone, and I told him I was going to do a, a, a response. Um, we talked about some of uh, Bethel and IHOP. Um, Bethel and IHOP teach dispensational premillennialism. They teach it in their schools. I have friends that have gone to these schools, especially uh, IHOP Kansas City, been a part of their Antioch Center for Training and Sending. That's kind of their missions school uh, where they send people out all over the world. Um, and, and in IHOP is really where uh, the Seven Mountain Mandate teaching kind of took shape. Uh, and all of their teaching really is dispensational premillennialism. Um, they actually sell John MacArthur books on revelation and eschatology in their bookstores and at their conferences. Um, so now my theory, so don't hold this as factual, um, uh, since the seven mount mandate is kind of a newer teaching, but my thought is that they were taking from each of the eschatological views that Bethel and, and IHOP are kind of pulling from different eschatological views. So the main teaching is dispensational premillennialism. The domain portion is from postmillennialism, and then the spiritualization is from amillennialism. And if you know anything about the New Apostolic Reformation and the Word of Faith movement, um, almost everything is over-spiritualized. So that is, was just a real quick uh, thing about the Seven Mountain Mandate. <clears throat> now, there was also a comment about the Great Commission. Uh, and it was really that Christ has the authority, not us. It is not for us to take dominion, but to disciple the nations. And the post-mill would actually say, Amen. Amen, brother. That's, that's, that's exactly what we believe. We do not have the power. Uh, we do not have the authority. But Christ does, and what he has given us is the gospel, which Paul says in Romans uh, 1.16 is the power of God unto salvation. And as we saw earlier, when Christ speaks to Peter, the keys to the kingdom have been given to the church. So because Christ has all power— 
and all authority. We proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. And we have faith that Christ is powerful enough to actually save. The preaching of the gospel is going to disciple the nations. So to address uh, one of uh, Pastor uh, Justin Pierce's questions, how long is the age that Christ is referring in in the great commi- referring to in the great commission. So in the great commission where Christ says, "Lo and behold, I will be with you until the end of the age." Pastor Pierce says, "How long is the age that Christ is referencing?" Well, that's the wrong question. The right question is since we are to disciple the nations and Christ possesses all power and authority, do you believe the nations will be discipled? If yes, then the dominion of Christ grows as the kingdom expands throughout the world by the preaching of the gospel. If you don't believe the nations will be discipled, then why not? This actually reminds me of uh, a comment by Dr. John MacArthur where, um, where he actually said, we lose here. We lose on this battleground. No, we don't lose here. We don't lose on this battleground. Why? Because the Great Commission was given for the gospel to go forth on this battlefield. To say that we lose here is to say that the Great Commission fails. Why would it fail? Because the Great Commission was given Again, for the gospel to go forth on this battlefield. Either it will be victorious and the nations will be discipled, or it will fail. Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. So, as Dr. Greg Bonson would love to say, do you think Jesus forgot to ask? The... No, we do not lose here. We can't lose here. That doesn't make any sense. Since Christ possesses all authority on earth and in heaven, and and the gospel was given for this battlefield. If we lose here, then there is no point to proclaim the gospel on this battlefield if we don't win. But I digress. Uh, there was <clears throat> a question asked about replacement theology. Uh, this is the idea that the church has replaced Israel. Uh, and our brother Justin Peters says that this is actually a dangerous teaching and that you have to change your hermeneutic in order to read the scriptures in that way uh, to say that the church replaces Israel. <clears throat> now, I don't prefer the name replacement theology. I prefer the term continuity. There is a continuity with the church and Israel because you see the very promises of Israel in the Old Testament applied to the church in the New Testament. Uh, And the issue I take with uh, what our brother Justin Peters said is that you have to ignore all the passages where Israel is actually rejected especially Matthew 21, verse 43, where Jesus says that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. It it will actually be taken away from Israel. Think about uh, when Christ curses the fig tree. 
That's a representation of uh, a representation of Israel, and Jesus curses it and says, "No fruit will come from you." So in Scripture, we actually see the kingdom being taken away from Israel, and then we see, but we also see all of the promises in the Old Testament actually applied to the church in the New Testament. Uh, now there, there there's one more thing I wanted to address as well, and that was a comment by Dr. Anthony Silvestro. He thought he was getting out of here uh, unmentioned, but uh, I got him. Uh, Now, he actually had, um, the the episode that he did with he and Justin Pierce, um, uh, it it seemed to be a lively discussion kind of about police and, and their role and, and Christians and, and we're looking at in different parts of, uh, of the world, especially Canada, where, you know, police are going into homes and arresting people and shutting down churches and barricading churches and things like that. Um, uh, a very, very good, very lively uh, discussion that they had. But on the on this particular episode, um, the uh, resurrection and premillennialism, uh, the the topic of James Coates came up again because they were shutting, you know, they've shut down his church again. They've barricaded it. They've put 200-something police officers outside uh, his church so that no one could get in. And Dr. Silvestro makes the comment. He says, basically, he's like, well, why not just cut down the fences? That's your church. When You know, basically, it's like, when are you going to take an actual stand? When is the point to fight? Because I, and, and he basically said the comment, you know, when are, are Christian men going to start acting like men and start fighting? And as, my question to him is, as a premillennialist, why? If you're a premillennialist, why? Why would you fight? Why not let everything take place so that the rapture to to basically quicken the rapture? It's almost a seven mountain mandate in reverse. Let tribulation happen so that you can be raptured out, so that everything starts in motion. Why would why why not just let the world continue to to deteriorate? Since that's your view, it makes sense from a post millennial view why you would fight why you would actually have something to stand up for in this world, on this earth, physically, it makes sense. But from a premillennial standpoint, why? I, I don't, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would you even do that? I mean, if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to be a premillennialist, then live like a premillennialist, but don't tell people to fight like a postmillennialist. Cause that doesn't make sense at all to me. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, now I agree with you. I, I actually agree with you. Let's fight. But that I would also say that's a great post mill worldview that you're importing into your theology there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyways, um, I if you've stuck around this long, uh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, thank you for sticking it out. Um, we covered a whole lot of, of stuff here and there was more that I really wanted to get, but you know, I didn't want to make it like two hours, uh, because I, I, 
I, I had the plan to get into Daniel 9, because that's always a question that Andrew has is, well, what do people do about the 70th week? Um, and, uh, you know, there's actually, there's actually a lot of work that's already been done in that area. Um, if you, you, and you, the listener can actually go and, and, and research Daniel 70 weeks, the, the post mill view, uh, you can research and, and look at the writings of Gary DeMar, of Kenneth Gentry, of, uh, you know, Greg Bonson's touched some on it, uh, David Chilton as well. Um, the work is out there. You just got to go read it. Um, and I think, I think they make some great arguments, um, for that. But, uh, again, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, this, this response is received well. I hope it's received with, uh, with, with brotherly affection and love, uh, just from, from one believer who loves God's word and loves his gospel and loves, uh, the people of Christ. Uh, I hope it is received by other brothers who love God's word and love God's people and love, uh, love, uh, Jesus in, in, in his church, um, but with that, uh, I am going to get out of here because I am super tired. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> stay tuned because I'm sure this will lead to more discussion with Andrew, uh, Justin, and Dr. Silvestro. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure they will correct me <laughs> on many points, uh, and it will be be and it will be received with with brotherly love and affection because I love those men. Um, and I do, uh, I do look to them, uh, as, as some mentors in my life. And I'm, I'm thankful for them that the Lord has, has placed them in my life. Uh, but with that, I'm going to get out of here and I will catch you on the next one. <laughs>